Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 2nd, 2019. We hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. You know who didn't have a good Labor Day weekend? The Chicago White Sox, as they were swept again, this time by the Atlanta Braves. The White Sox have lost six games in a row, and as we are in our third year of the rebuild, uh, is this the last September watching the White Sox rebuilding? We'll try to answer that question later in the show, plus your questions in P.O. Sox. The Arizona Fall League rosters were announced earlier this week, and it's always a fun month getting a last chance to see some of the game's top prospects face each other one last time. There's a lot of star power in this Arizona Fall League season, as 20 MLB Pipeline's top 100 will be participating. None of those 20 prospects, though, are from the White Sox, as headlining their submissions to the Arizona Fall League are Gavin Sheets and Blake Rutherford. Join us now to preview the Arizona Fall League and touch on the 2019 season for the White Sox prospects, as well as take a look ahead to the 2020 Major League Baseball draft as showcases continue, uh, is our very good friend of the podcast, senior writer of MLB.com and MLB Pipeline, it's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh yeah, glad to be here. Always, always enjoy, uh, always enjoy it. Well, before we dive into the Arizona Fall League, which I know you love. I do. Last time we spoke, your son was pitching for Team Switzerland. What was that experience like for you getting a chance to watch him? 
Um, it was it was cool. He did not. He he will be the first. He did not throw strikes. I mean, it was against Finland, a team that that, that switch was going to blow out anyway. But it was pretty cool seeing him get that opportunity and getting to meet the team uh, a little bit over there in Slovakia. And uh, and he's played a little bit in Swiss has a. I don't know, professional league or semi-professional league, but Swiss, Switzerland has a baseball league, so he's commuted back and forth and played a little bit for one of their teams. So it's uh, just as somebody who's always loved baseball, it was kind of cool to see him get the opportunity to do something like that. Any prospects that you saw when you were over in Slovakia? Um, you know, I'm not particularly. Um, you know, I, I saw some, some good baseball play against better teams. I do know Switzerland lost to Lithuania in the semifinals uh, and on a – you know they they use the international extra inning rule which I hate, but they gave up a grand slam in the tenth inning, and the kid who hit the grand slam is and I don't have his name in front of me is actually a seventeen year old high school junior from Illinois, um, <laughs> who apparently you know has big time power. I think it's a, a very aggressive swing from from what I hear, uh, and his. Uh, I'm trying to think of a play way to put this. Apparently, his on-field makeup is not very good. That he tends to yell at both his teammates and at the other team. So, uh, I, I will be digging more into him when, when I get to the 2020 draft. But, uh, but it was kind of interesting that that was, uh, the, you know, that the the, the the player who hit the grand slam was, uh, you know, what was that type? You know, it was it was actually a high school from here. I'm trying to look up his name on the internet here. He's it's, it's Vitus Valentius from St. Lawrence High School. That that's the kid's name. St. Lawrence High School. So who would have thought? Wow. Like who? And, and I also, <laughs> right. I, and then the other thing that was funny is like before the first game, I was sitting in the stands, and there were coaches from some of the other teams scouting players, and then the other assistant coach from Lithuania was from Durham, North Carolina. And he's like, oh, do you know? And I said, oh, I used to live there with Baseball American. He's like, oh, do you know Alan Simpson? I was like, do I know Alan Simpson? You know, Alan Simpson's the guy who founded Baseball American, hired me back in 1988. So I was like, yes, I know Alan Simpson. And Alan had coached him, uh, you know, this guy, Will, and I'm forgetting his last name, which is terrible right now, uh, and Alan's son in Little League. So it was just, it was a very small world over there. It was crazy. Wow, that is, that's an awesome story. Well, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to learn more about this high schooler from St. Lawrence that played for Team Lithuania uh, in 2019. But looking at the Arizona Fall League, again, it's a star-studded affair. Some of the top prospects and names that even White Sox fans know, Joe Adele, Royce Lewis, Alex Krilov, Joey Bart, Alec Baum, uh, just to name a few. Again, 20 of MLB Pipeline's top 100 are participating in this year's Arizona Fall League. And just on that fact alone, Jim, where does the talent level rank compared to previous Arizona Fall Leagues? Is this one of the more star-studded affairs? Yeah, I, I haven't. I don't know if anybody's tracked, but like I know there were 20 top ones, like you mentioned, on our list. And that seems high to me. Now, now granted, this happens every year. I'm sure when the season starts, we won't quite have 20. It might be 17 or 18, like plans change, you know, maybe somebody's a little dinged up or not ready, or somebody gets summoned to the big leagues in September, now the AFL season's earlier, you know, that would be a conflict. But I think that's as much as I can remember, you know, the, the, the rules are different. I think, you know, the, the league was designed for doubling up, and then there were some exceptions, you could take a certain number of guys in A-ball, and now I think there might still be some light rules, but pretty much 
organization can go. You, you, there's no rule that he has to have played X amount or done whatever. I, and I, I don't know about you, Josh, but I was kind of hoping we – and I thought there was a chance we might actually see Andrew Vaughn in the Arizona Fall League. Um, like I thought that would have been a good opportunity for him. Um, you know, he's going to get a couple hundred at-bats. You know, he's been, mm-hmm. you know, good, not great. Um, you know, not that I don't think anybody's any of Andrew Vaughn's change, but I just thought who people think is going to move pretty quick. Sending him to the fall league might have been a, a pretty natural move. Um, that said, I guess I hadn't thought it through, and they had a first base when they want to get at bats to. I guess Gavin Sheets makes more sense because he's a level ahead of Andrew Vaughn, but a little disappointed personally that we're not getting Andrew Vaughn in, in the Arizona fall league. Yeah, for the White Sox, it's Blake Rutherford, Gavin Sheets, Tyler Johnson, and Bernardo Flores as the bigger names out of the White Sox farm system. Uh, they do have a to-be-announced player to be added, and it sounds like that will be Mike Rodolfo as soon as Adolfo Looks like he's physically ready. I've heard the exact same thing. I've heard the exact same thing. We'll definitely be a position player. And I've also heard that it, it will be Mike Rodolfo if he's, if he's physically ready. So you mentioned Gavin Sheets. And when you look at Sheets' final slash line, it's not that impressive. But when you dive deeper into the second half with Birmingham, he did hit 303 with a 384 on base percentage. And he slugged 500 hitting 14 doubles and nine home runs in the second half. Now, that type of performance is what you expect from a first baseman whose best skill is power. But you did highlight the disappointment that we're not seeing Andrew Vaughn in the Arizona Fall League. And it does appear, you know, does appear that Vaughn is going to be a quick riser through the White Sox farm system. So if you're Gavin Sheets, how critical is this Fall League for you to still be considered part of the White Sox future plans? Um... I don't know how critical it is. It is a small sample size. Um, theoretically, you know, there'd be room at DH for somebody. Um, you know, if both these guys are ready, and I mean, Matt Collins might factor in for the DH plans too. So I don't think it's super critical. But what I do think it, it, it does, and maybe even more crucial. I mean, I guess it ties into how he performs. But, you know, look, you know, yes, one of these guys can wind up at DH, but we all know who the baseman of the future is in the White Sox station. They, they didn't take Andrew Vaughn number three overall in the hopes that he might possibly be their first baseman. They're banking on that. So if you're Gavin Sheets, you know, I, I don't really think Gavin Sheets or Andrew Vaughn can play another position. So you, you really only have DH as an option, which, you know, you generally don't see young guys break into the big leagues as DH. So I think for, for Sheets, it's not so much – cementing his standing in the White Sox organization, it's a chance to show 29 other nations who will be bearing down on him a little bit more than they might necessarily be, what he can do. So if somebody else needs a first baseman, they can say, hey, we saw Gavin Sheets in the fall league, and he looked pretty good, and the White Sox are going to be blocked, so maybe we can swing some kind of deal. So I think that's almost more important. Cause I, I mean, Gavin Sheets could go, go out and, and do what Adam Engel did in the Arizona Fall League a couple of years ago, and Andrew Vaughn's still going to be the White Sox first baseman of the future. But the only thing Gavin Sheets probably has going for him in that race is, you know, I think he's going to start next year in AAA. You know, Vaughn will probably start next year in AA. And if there was a neat big league level, you know, Gavin Sheets might get a chance to show what he could do in Chicago before Andrew Vaughn. But I don't even think that's a given. You know, if it plays out, I mean, you know, Andrew Vaughn could, could beat Chicago. So I, I think the AFL gives him an opportunity to kind of show everybody else what he can do, uh, you know, in case somebody else needs to, needs to first baseman. Another player that I think in the Arizona Fall League for the White Sox I'll be showcasing for the other 29 teams is Blake Rutherford. I don't think he had a very good 2019 season. 
He did hit better in the second half, but not as good as Sheets did. His second half slash line was a 298 batting average, 344 on base percentage, but he slugged 398. And the lack of power is a concern. And I feel, Jim, that he needs to have a good fall league so the White Sox could possibly move him in a deal to help the roster in Chicago, some type of trade over the offseason. But that would mean it's Rutherford's third organization since being drafted, as he was originally drafted by the Yankees and then moved to the White Sox. What are you hearing about Rutherford's future status? Is he still someone that the industry thinks can be a major leaguer? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. He hits an awful lot of ground balls, and they've they've worked on that. He had fewer ground balls than he did in 2-teen, um, but he's still hitting an awful lot of ground balls, and, and he put the ball in the air. I mean, he only hit seven home runs so far this year. And only 16 doubles. So it's these guys who's got 35 doubles. Like, you know, last year he had 25 doubles and nine triples. So you, you're encouraged. He's driving the ball. Like, we'll turn some of those into home runs. And that hasn't happened. And the slugging's down to 363. You know, and I know I've talked about with the White Sox. One of the tricky things ranking their system is, you know, at least Robert obviously is, is the kill, but you have all these outfielders who are kind of dubbed. And, and I do feel like Steel Walker's kind of separated himself a little bit. And I do – the lack of power almost in my mind has Blake Rutherford moving kind of to the back of the pack for for me in that list because, you know, he's a core guy and he's really it. And even you know, even though he was better in the second half, I mean, you know, 290 in double A and 340 on base, I mean, that's not great. You know, 22, he's not extremely young. Um, you know, I, I to me – I guess I'll quibble again. I don't think the fall league, the key for him would be to perform well to enhance his trade value because, to be honest, I don't think he has much trade value right now. I mean, you're talking about a crowd filter who's slugged 400 in his minor league career. So, like, if you're projecting him out, like, you know, what does that mean? Like, I know okay. the baseballs are going to be different in AAA and, and the big leagues, but, like, I don't know. I, I don't know how you project him right now as more than maybe a 15-hole guy. That's not going to cut it, and it's not like he's hit for high average. So I almost feel like the fall league for him would be important to you know, maybe figure out, you know, and I don't know if, you, if it will happen, but figure out some things and learn to drive the ball in the air some more and, and not hit as many ground balls. Although I think that stuff is probably easier to work on like on the side than necessarily in game action against some, some quality. But, you know, I, I mean – I'm not saying, I mean, <laughs> I haven't done our top third for the offseason yet, but like right now he's at number nine, and I don't, I mean, to me right now he'd be more like in the late teens if I was doing the list. So looking at the two pitchers the White Sox are sending that are notable, Tyler Johnson and Bernardo Flores. Johnson is a reliever, and he may get a shot with the White Sox sometime in 2020 if he can stay healthy. And Flores, he's a starter and at times has really impressed with his stuff. But again, he has been injured this season. Uh, Out of those two, who do you think has a better chance of reaching the majors, Tyler Johnson or Bernardo Flores? Um, I'd say Tyler Johnson because I think his stuff is better. Um, I think it's easier to make it as a reliever than than as a starter. Flores is more of a Tuttle guy, I, I don't think it's going to be the type of guy like you're going to put him in the bullpen and he's going to throw, you know, 95. Like he's flashed stuff before. He I mean he's hit 97 the best, but he's more 89 to 92 with good life and, and his changeups his best pitch. You know he doesn't. It's not like he's got that 
you know, quality breaking ball. Like we always used to talk about with Jordan Stevens. Okay, the breaking ball, even if he doesn't make it a starter, you could see him being a reliever. You know, I do think he'll play in the big leagues. Um because he throws a ton of strikes. I mean, at some point he'll get a chance. You know, I don't know if it'll be a long chance. But, you know, teams always need starting pitchers. He'll be in AAA next year. He's always strikes. He's had success when healthy. I mean, this year was just an oblique, so it wasn't an arm injury. Um, and I think at some point next year they'll need us. He'll get a chance. And if he pitches well, he'll, he'll continue to get chances. Um, you know, Tyler Johnson, you know, is interesting. You know, he's kind of like the opposite of Flores in almost every way. He's like right-handed versus left-handed, reliever versus starter. He's up to 98, but his fastball is pretty straight. Like, it's, it's, it's a straight fastball. So he can throw it by guys, but if he leaves it, you know, it's effective if he throws at the letters. It's effective if he, if he leverages down in the zone. If he leaves it in the middle of the plate, you know, his fastball is going to get whacked, um, especially if big guys can hit, you know, velocity. But, you know, it's pretty interesting. You know, he, you know, his control's okay. Um, you know, you know the, the thing with Tyler, he needs to do, I think, more than anything, is is refine his breaking ball. You know, his slider can be sharp at times, but it's inconsistent. I, I wouldn't be surprised. He's a little bit of a an older guy when, when they drafted him. Um, like he turned 22 like a couple months after the draft. I, I I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw him in Chicago next year if he if he stays healthy and throws strikes. But I, I think how well he refines that breaking ball will really determine. You know, is this a guy? You're going to use, you know, in you know the later innings and higher leverage roles, or is he more a guy who kind of throws hard, but you don't really trust him, you know, after the sixth inning or so. So if you look at the White Sox top 30 prospects on MLBPipeline.com, you'll notice that Dylan Cease has graduated from the prospect list. So the White Sox top five prospects at the moment is Luis Robert, Michael Kopech, Andrew Vaughn, Nick Magical, and Dun- uh, Dane Dunning in that order. Luis Robert. We know why he won't be called up in September, but his 2019 was a pretty dramatic transformation from his 2018 season in which he didn't hit any home runs, and now he's hit 30-plus home runs in three different levels. When looking at the game's top prospects, Jim, where does Robert rank among the best? Well, I mean, he's right up there at the top. I mean, you know, it's interesting because we talked about him last season, too, um... You know, in the fall league, it was interesting. I, I was looking forward to seeing him in the fall league, and we do these fall league previews for each team. And usually, Jonathan Mayo goes down and interviews a bunch of players before the start of the season, and we have a video clip, and we we take a couple quotes from that, and we we put that into the feature on one guy, and then we mention the other guys kind of at the end. You know, what, what kind of stuff they have briefly. And I was writing out Luis Robert. You know, I, I actually remember I think I was writing his feature on the way to Arizona, because right? those features usually run early in the fall league season. Like, you know, he's been hurt, but getting a chance to show what he could do, blah, 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 blah. And then he pulled his hamstring. So I had to update the story before I even landed, or I guess after I landed, because he got hurt and he missed a week. And it was like, at that point, it was like, wow, you know, this guy, you know, he sounds interesting. And I've written a thousand times. He kind of reminded me of a right-handed hitting outfield vision of Yohan Mankata, you know, the way they talk about the bat speed and, and the tools and all that, but you just hadn't seen him. And then when he got healthy, the five weeks of fall league season, he was electrifying. I mean, he had... I think I wrote, like, when I, I forget where I ranked him on our Fall League prospect list, but I know it was pretty high last year, like, the best combination of, like, bat speed and foot speed. I mean, you could just test guy. Like, you, like those last two weeks, you could finally see. And I, I hadn't seen a lot before, but he was healthy. And you could definitely look and say, okay, this is why the guy got $26 million. The tools are good. I, I mean, I, I he's in that upper tier of prospects. I mean, to me, I think Wander Franco 
is the best prospect in baseball. And I feel pretty solid about that. If somebody wanted to argue Luis Robert was the two prospect in baseball, I could see that. I mean, I think I think there's 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 to me Franco's one, and then I think there's five guys, and you can you know it's kind of personal preference as to hitter versus pitcher, how close to the big leagues a guy you know if you like your guys closer to the big leagues. If somebody wanted to argue that Luis Robert was the second best prospect in baseball, I could probably see that. It's just like I said. I mean, I know these lists when we do them, you know, we'll hear from you know fans like, oh, I can't believe so and so so low or whatever. But, like, I really think two through six, I mean, somebody's got to be six in that group, but you can put those guys in any order. So if you want to, if you want, if somebody wants to make the argument Luis Robert is the second best prospect in baseball, I won't, I won't disagree with him. So continuing with Robert, I know you like answering questions about comparing prospects in your mailback columns on MLB Pipeline. So I have one for you. Okay. Out of these three White Sox prospects, Yoan Mikata, Eloy Jimenez, and Luis Robert, which of them do you think was the most impressive during their time in the minors? Tough. Um, it's tough. Uh, wow. I'd have to. I, I would probably. If you asked me this again, like tomorrow, and I thought about it, then I might give you a different answer. <sighs> yeah. I, I, see, <laughs> my first inclination. We'll, we'll work through it. My first inclination was Mankata. Because he started off slow. I don't know if people remember, like he, but he, you know, he got the record bonus. And he started off slow, and then the second half of Greenville in low A ball in his first year of his pro debut, he was unbelievable. And then the next year, pitched it in Boston on a playoff team. Uh, you know, and then he wound up getting traded. Now that said, I mean, he did strike out a decent amount, but like, I, I guess I might say him. I mean, he hadn't really grown into his power, but I mean, and basically. Two years in the minors, 187 games. He stole 94 bases. He had, I'm doing the math in my head here, 82 extra base hits, you know, on the fly. And he was young and he got to the big leagues. I, I guess I would say him. <laughs> but then again, you know, Eloy Jimenez, you know, just raked for three years in a row. Like, he, he got a little sort of start, you know, when he signed as a 16-year-old. But he was the MVP of the Midwest League at age 19, had the big futures game. And then the year he got traded to the White Sox, he put up better numbers. And then last year, he put up even better numbers than that. So he really raked for three years. So he was really impressive. I mean, it'll sound silly, but, I mean, Robert would be number three on that list for me just because he's done it for one year. You know, he had the DSL year where they sent him to DSL for tax purposes, and the competition isn't really much of a challenge for him, and he tore it up. And he had some minor injuries there, and the injuries kind of ruined his last year. So he really only had one year. So I guess Robert would be third on that list, although I think if you're talking about an individual season, like one single season, I think Robert's 30-30 season would be hard. Are you surprised that Eloy Jimenez has struggled so much as he has his rookie year, especially at the plate? Not terribly. I mean, I mean, I know the balls are jacked up and everybody's hitting home runs. I mean, he's probably going to wind up with, what, 25-plus runs in 120 games or so. Um, you know, I think with him, the, the problem has been that, like, he just hasn't fallen. You know, it seemed like when he started to get going, then he ran into Charlie Tilson, and he, you know, has been struggling to kind of get it back there since. I mean, I think he's expanded his strike zone more than than I would have expected. I mean, I guess that part's the part that surprised me. I mean, if you told me, oh, he's only going to hit 240, I mean, that half, the fact that he, he's not controlling the strike zone very well, that surprised me a little bit. I, you know, he's always put the ball or the bat on the ball so easily that I don't think he's ever necessarily going to be like, you know, an 80 to 100 walk guy. But, 
you know, he's striking out a lot more than he did in the minors. Honestly, he's probably tried to do a little too much. Uh, but, like, I still am very high on him. Um, I still think he's, he's a can't-miss um, bat. Um, I will, at some point, I think the very near future, I have to <laughs> check my schedule, um, do I do this article that just inflames people more than any article I do here every year where it's rank the current rookie class uh, based on long-term potential. And, you know, I, I, you know, people go off because I don't, uh, you know, there'll be some guy having a huge year, say, like Trey Mancini stick. Like Jim Palmer was like, not angry, but like Jim Palmer like questioned me multiple times on Twitter. Like who, like basically who is this guy? Why is he not like Trey Mancini? It's like Trey Mancini was old for a rookie and he's one dimensional and all that. So anyway, when I, when I do that article, which will inflame people, I'm sure Eloy will still be near the top of that list. I mean, the one thing, and it's always hard to, I mean, you can see it too watching him. I mean, he's been horrible defensively. Like, the defense metrics hate Eloy, and he's got a that. Like, he he never was going to be, I think, a gold glover, but he's got to be a outfielder. And he, at times, he's looked, uh, dare I say, Kyle Schwarber-esque out there. Um, and, and I think he's got the physical tools to be better than that. And then lastly, the 2020 Major League Baseball draft, again, will be in June of 2020, but... You had the Cape Cod League, and you have high school showcases around the country. The under-18 Team USA is currently playing in the World Cup. And last week, you released your top 20 prospects for both high school and college. And something that really caught my attention, Jim, that you wrote, that this draft class could be as deep as the 2011 Major League Baseball draft class. And just to refresh our listeners' minds, that draft class featured Anthony Rendon, and Garrett Cole, who are going to be very rich during this offseason. Francisco Lindor is going to be very rich very soon. Trevor Bauer, Javier Baez, Trevor Story, Blake Snell, Jackie Bradley Jr. And that's just naming a few of the first-round guys. And I think Mookie Betts and Kyle Hendricks were like fifth and eighth-round picks, if I remember. It was a really, really good draft. So right now for the white Sox, they would have the ninth pick in next year's draft is this upcoming class deep enough that fans won't have to root for losses in september for the white Sox to get a better draft pick or should they not be so concerned about losses in september so they can get one of the better players in the upcoming draft well it's it's only i think like it's I think going to be the best draft since 2011 and i think there is depth and the one thing especially compared to 2018 the pitching's a lot better. Like, like there just was not pitching in this year's draft. First round caliber pitching. Teams like to see it. So there will be more of that coming up in 2020. You know, it, it, it's tough because like, there's an interesting question. Like, like what should the White Sox fans root for? Like, would you like to see the team? Like, I, I you know, I, I say this all the time. Teams sometimes contend. You know, or, or the teams with good farm systems contend before. Sometimes people expect it. I, you know, I, I guess if I'm a White Sox fan, you know what I would like to see? I guess I would want to see see them maybe go, you know, 18 and 12 in September, something I can on going into next year. I'd like to see the team sustain some success at the big league level. I'm not saying they need to make the playoffs next year. But, you know, hey, you know, even going 82 and 80 would be a positive step. So I guess if I'm a White Sox fan and I, can, I believe that you can build off of September, I would like to see them do well. Now, now that said, the tough part is – if you're not going to make the playoffs, you're almost better, always better off finishing with a better draft pick. Like, like you'd rather pick, 
Now, you said they pick ninth. Like, I'm looking at this realistically. Uh, like, they're not – I mean, they they could catch <laughs> catch Seattle. They could catch a couple teams in the National League. So, I mean, they could maybe work in their top five. But, I mean, there is, there is depth. Right? Yes, they could still get a good play nine. But, obviously, you'd rather pick five to nine because you get more money and you get a shot at a better player. But, um, you know, there's going to be – you know, maybe the ninth pick right now would be somebody like Asa Lacey, who's a lefty who missed a bat to Texas A&M. He'd be a really nice, nice fit for them. Like, I, I don't necessarily see them taking a high school guy there. Um, not necessarily just because he's a high school guy, but just to like trying to like. I think we could see college heavy at the top of the draft too, just with the way the industry goes. So like, maybe they get a guy like Asa Lacey at, at number nine or wherever they wind up, which would be a nice pick for them. We don't even know who's going to be making that pick because Nick Hostetler is no longer the director of amateur scouting. Yeah, well, and I'll ask you this question because I've been running around doing other stuff. Have you heard any scuttlebutt? Because I, I thought initially it was – maybe I imagined this. There was some talk that they might make a move clean and do so from within. Right. And I haven't heard anything. I haven't even heard any rumors like, like, oh, you know, this is the guy who looks like he's going to wind up with the job. I, I haven't heard him I thought the expectation was they were going to promote within. And it was going to be shortly announced after Rick Khan announced that Nick Hostetler is a special advisor to the GM. But we haven't heard anything. There's really no chatter going on. on who's... Okay, so I heard the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I, I'm exactly with you. I, I, I thought that. Okay, good. I'm glad I did not imagine that, Josh. But yes, I thought I heard the same thing. That was the the, the reports you heard at the time, and I've heard nothing, and, and, I, and I'm still not hearing anything. Like I haven't even heard. Anybody who's rumored to be the guy to take over. But, yeah, you're, you're right. We don't even know who will be making that pick. And when we do, uh, we'll definitely write about it on SoxMachine.com, which everyone can look forward to. But it will be interesting to see on what direction the White Sox go uh, as it maybe it could suggest a different mentality or strategy with the Major League Baseball draft. But, again, we'll be covering that more in 2020. You can follow Jim on Twitter. He's at Jim Callis MLB and read his excellent work on MLB.com, which they also have a podcast and they'll be covering the Arizona Fall League in detail. And you can submit questions to him as he answers them weekly in a mailbag. As always, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Oh yeah, great to talk to you, Josh. I always enjoy it. I know it's baseball season, but many of us are gearing up for fantasy football. Some of you might be like me and you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. Just recently, I made a new website to track our standings and all of our past champions, which if you want to check out, you can go to DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops like me, no worries. They have a lot of website examples you can use for a variety of topics like a blog, or your photography, weddings, and even small business options. Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice they have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create our standings and allow our other participants in the league to track their progress. They also have other built-in tools like storage and custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools you can use to get your website found easily on Google. And every site is automatically optimized for any device. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your business, share your talents to the world, 
or like me, create a website for our fantasy football league. Whatever you're dreaming of, you'll need a website and Wix can help. Get started by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. Now I'm joined by Jim Margulis, the co-host of the podcast and a managing editor of SoxMachine.com. And hello, Jim. I hope you had a much better Labor Day weekend than the White Sox did. I can't complain. It was 70 degrees. I won a little bit at the trek. And uh, yeah, I think that automatically qualifies as better. How about you? Yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. I was just lazy this weekend. <laughs> catching also up on, probably better. <laughs> yeah, catching up on sleep. Probably like a lot of people, I got sucked in watching a lot of college football over the weekend uh, and also finding a way to watch the the White Sox this weekend. We'll, we'll touch on the Atlanta series. There's not a lot to take away in these types of beatdown when the White Sox are swept. Again, they have lost six games in a row. Uh, they're currently 60 and 76 on the season, and you don't want to dwell too much on the specifics of these types of losses, especially in the third year of the rebuild. Now on Sunday was fun because you got a chance to speak with Matt Spiegel on 670 the score. And about 30 minutes later, I was on ESPN 1000. So Sox machine took over the radio airwaves uh, for 45 minutes in Chicago. So that was fun. And I think there are some common questions that are starting to circle around as far as his white Sox team. And I think these types of questions are, Will this be the last time as a fan I have to stop worrying about service time manipulation? Is this the last time I have to worry if the White Sox will DFA the bad players so they could call up the prospects? Is this the last time I don't have to care if the Charlotte Knights are competing for the postseason because the White <laughs> Sox will call up the best players without hesitation? But I think all these types of questions can be summed up to this one, Jim. Is this the last rebuilding September? White Sox fans have to go through for the foreseeable future. God, I hope so. I I would say it's the last rebuilding September White Sox fans should expect. I think, you know, when you you look at this September and, you know, the, the, I guess the range of possibilities uh, the White Sox could experience, this is on the lower end of it, but within the realm of, uh, I guess, expectations without it being complete smoldering disaster. It's only... Mostly disaster, but there are some bright spots and there are, um, you know, the Twins being stronger than maybe expected earlier than anticipated. You know, that kind of makes them an afterthought in the AL Central. So that that makes that climb tougher. So you can kind of count on punting, punting September and, and having the old service time arguments, even if we don't agree with them. But by this point next year, if they're... 10 to 15 games below 500 and still you know, playing the Ryan Goins's of the world and uh, the Wellington Castillos and they're not calling up guys, you know, who would be Andrew Vaughn, maybe, you know, if he has a big year, right. You know, if, if they're holding him back because of service time, uh, even though Jose Bray is in a one-year contract and he's going to be up next, then I think even the most uh, Han sympathetic or, or even Han's biggest fans, I, I think won't have much to say. So I think that's going to be the end of the patience for even the most patient sorts. I think, you know, uh, people like us might have already been there and, and might have been there last year, even or last winter after the the offseason kind of fizzled and uh, the the realization of the White Sox lackluster winner, you know, came, you know, 
it, it was realized and it came to fruition over the course of the season. So, you know, we've maybe been on that track earlier, but I think, uh, you know, people have been on the track before us. And I just think everybody at that point, even if it takes like over a two year period, will be on board with saying, what are the White Sox doing here? And there are some that think that the rebuild is over after this season. And I want to believe that. I want to believe this is the last year when we say rebuilding September or rebuilding season that fans should expect the White Sox to not be very competitive. And what's odd about this year, and I don't think this narrative is going to change after the month of September, is that the White Sox clearly peaked. It was a lot of fun to talk about this team in the early part of July, heading to the All-Star break, because they were 42-44. and 44. They were playing really well as a team. Yoan Mikata was terrific. Tim Anderson was doing his thing. Eloy Jimenez just had his first good month as a professional. And they were flirting with 500, teasing White Sox fans, uh, maybe even showing a glimpse of better days ahead. But in the second half of the season, 2018, Yohan Makata has returned to the plate. And that's a bit unfortunate as he's striking out 33% of the time. Uh, Tim Anderson, while offensively he is doing well, he is now regressing back to not only his defensive mistakes, but now base running mistakes, as we saw in the Atlanta series, especially on Sunday's uh, toot bland that he had. And offensively, they still rank close to the bottom, so there's not a whole lot of progress being made ramping up uh, as far as up the J curve uh, for those that are in business, uh, if you understand as far as that analogy to a hopefully successful 2020 season. And even though it is September, the two first call-ups that Rick Hahn made were Manny Benuelos and Carson Fulmer. Woo! <laughs> yes, let's get excited all because uh, we are, we're still waiting to see what the final outcome will be for the Charlotte Knights and will come down to the final game on Labor Day as the Knights need to win and they need to hope that the Durham Bulls lose in order to make the postseason. Yeah. Uh, if that doesn't come to fruition. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing with Banuelos and Fulmer is that their first games with Charlotte, they both were pretty much the primary reasons why the Knights lost those games to Durham. Right. So I thought that was funny. Just the White Sox kind of sat, you know, they've made such a big deal about Charlotte's playoff run. And then when it comes to the final week of the season, they saddle them with these underperformers in Chicago and rehab stints and end up uh, helping lose two of the three games in a, in a sweep. Uh, Durham helped Durham get back in it. And now they own the tiebreaker. So that was just a little bit uh, both unfortunate, but also, I guess, like just a, a sneaky under the radar perfect depiction of just how much is wrong with the major league product that even like they're it is somehow you know you usually see like the minor league guys come up and 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 make the major league product a little bit worse but now the major league guys are being sent down and making the minor league product a bit worse yeah that's a bit it's odd. awesome all the way around yeah <laughs> that's definitely a bit odd I, I asked him this question and the towards the end of the segment we just had with them you know what should white Sox root for in this in the month of September, if you go to tankathon.com slash MOB, uh, they will update the MOB draft order. And as we speak, the White Sox would have the ninth pick in next year's Major League Baseball draft. They are a half game ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, for the eighth spot. And the Pirates have been playing a lot better baseball as of late. They've won five games in a row while the White Sox have lost six games in a row. 
And and Jim's point of view was that if if he were a White Sox fan, he would want to see the team finish with a winning record in September that suggests that there is a ramp up to next season. And that ramp up means that they're going to compete in 2020. And, and he's been pretty consistent when we've had him on and saying that these types of rebuilds seem to click a year before a lot of people expect it to click. And he's not entirely sure if that's what the White Sox plans are for next year is to compete. And Jim's mm-hmm. been covering baseball for 30 plus years. So I would have to, he would have to have a good idea as far as being able to take the pulse of certain situations. And it just seems that there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the Chicago White Sox and what they hope to achieve last year. But I'm with you, Jim. I, I do hope that this is the last rebuilding September. I hope this is the last month where White Sox fans can say, you know what, at least the Bears are playing. Now I don't have to pay attention to the White Sox for the rest of the season. I hope that starting next year, we can move forward from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just that the way that this team has played in the second half of the season, I'm just not seeing a lot of moving forward or a lot of progression uh, to providing good results, unlike what we saw in late June and early July. Yeah, we got a question in Patreon from Mosox about this, like what to watch in September and just you know, how relentlessly bad the baseball has been as of late. And, and, you know, given that the schedule doesn't let up for a little bit before Detroit and, and, and the rest of the AL Central comes calling, it's going to be, you know, looks like more of the same and what to look for. And, uh, you know, that's the tough thing is that, you know, when you talk about you know, trying to find, uh, you know, what will click and what will provide the momentum going next season, you know, maybe they'll find it with Moncada getting over this little slump that he's in um, and, and uh, Tim Anderson having a good defensive month in September and Eloy Jimenez. You're starting to steady out. He's, he's had some more better luck with his contact and a little bit more contact and, and, and he's getting singles. They're not quite homers yet. He's not punishing the ball, but at least he's putting the ball where they aren't a little bit more regularly. So that's good to see. And, you know, him having a good month and, and going to the off season with some progress, but also some, some flaws to address. I think that's important, but you know, as we've talked about before and just how the White Sox have a tendency to uh, just perpetuate their own bad storylines or their own unsatisfying play and, and all these questions, just there isn't a whole lot else there. Like Tim Anderson at the plate, you know, it's cool if he, you know, does carry this all the way through and runs for the batting title and if Jose Abreu tries to set new career highs. and But, you know, it's still going to be the same team materially uh, next year uh, without barring some massive changes. And, and that's why I think, you know, Han is really under some pressure, at least when it comes to, you know, maybe the whole scope of White Sox results. I don't know if he's under any kind of pressure and accountability, you know, in the White Sox front office, but at least when it comes to, Maintaining fan interest and, and not letting the rebuild peter out from the fans' perspective, it's going to take new faces and more depth and new plans for a lot of positions. You know, the back end of the rotation, second base, uh, center slash fourth outfielder, you know, or even right field. Just going to need more, uh, or I guess a different set of ranks at these different positions in order to just not make it such a, like a one-ply attempt at contending to where if the first plan falls through, well, it's back to Dylan Covey and Ross Detweiler and uh, Yolmer Sanchez, if he's still around. Just these these guys have proven that they haven't worked or, or proven they can be full-season solutions. So, yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be tricky. And, and, you know, when you see how if the White Sox, you know, end up tanking in September and end up winning, you know, 70 games and 
looking like they're not really making progress towards uh, contention. You know, you can see just atrophy and, and just a, a lack of momentum or just any anything pointing the right direction to where the White Sox give into that and say, well, we're not quite there yet. The rebuild is a five-year project, as we've uh, always pretended to say. And just, you know, given to that just uh, failure. And, and I'm hoping that's not the case. And I'm hoping Johan is lying low because he's not going to say anything anyway, well, you know, even if he does have big plans. But it's just hard to really give anybody any benefit of the doubt right now. And that, and that's what, you know, when, when I was talking to Matt Spiegel, that was, I guess, one point I didn't quite make and just I've been thinking about is like the process of rebuilding, by definition, deserves some benefit of the doubt because they're losing games on purpose to win later. Uh, and it requires some uh, suspension of expectations and and thinking it'll all work out in the end. But the people running it have lost the benefit of the doubt a while ago, and there's a tension there that I guess some people interpret differently. Well, again, the first White Sox call-ups in September are going to be pitchers Manny Benuelos and Carson Fulmer, both not throwing the ball that well in the minors, as Jim mentioned. They may have cost the Charlotte Knights an opportunity to make the postseason. But the 40-man is currently full. All 40 players are so far on the list. There are no openings right now. So if you want to see someone like Luis Robert, Nick Magical, Yerman Mercedes, or even someone like Danny Mendek, Rickon needs to remove someone. Well, one player in particular that was just ruled out for the season could possibly open up a spot, and that is John Jay. As he is out for the rest of the season, which pretty much means his tenure with the Chicago White Sox is over. He was signed as someone that could possibly help lure his friend Manny Machado to the south side. That failed. And what the White Sox got for John Jay is not much. And I think you captured John Jay's tenure very well on SoxMachine.com over the weekend, Jim, including seeing the signs of his demise. Uh, Your final paragraph, though, was, quote, so while Jay will become an obscure, sporical Saturday answer in the not-too-distant future, he also kind of becomes the most emblematic player of Rick Hahn's off-seasons. No matter how hard either of them appear to be churning, neither of them could end up getting anywhere close to where they needed to be. The most emblematic player of Hahn's off-seasons. And I think, Jim, you're right. And I hope that Rick Hahn has learned his lesson that even though it was just $4 million to sign John Jay, which is not a lot for a player these days, it was still a bad investment and he needs to stay away from the clearance aisle for a bit when it comes to his plans of attack in the off seasons. What was your biggest takeaway from the John Jay era? Yeah, I think it was one that, you know, it, I guess you know, going back to what I was saying about the benefit of the doubt, it's this is where it's hard to give Rick Hahn any kind of, uh, I, I guess, any kind of wiggle room when it comes to his uh, decisions that don't work out. Because, I mean, like in this case with John Jay, he was brought in to try to help Manny Machado get here. And then, yeah, I respected, you know, as much as it sucked to see you know Manny Machado go to the Padres, I respected Jay for not... Letting himself be used, like you know, like Machado asked his opinion on San Diego and, and Alonzo, same thing, and they both said San Diego is great, and I I kind of appreciated that, you know, they wouldn't allow themselves to be, I guess, just uh, used as openly as it appeared to be based on you know why and when the White Sox acquired them, but you know, 
when you look at Jay and you look at how little he offered and same thing at Lonzo, you can write it off as, well, that was just an attempt because Jerry Reinsdorf wasn't going to spend $300 million and Han really wanted Machado, so he wanted to try another way to do it. And this is a creative end around to use NBA-style recruitment uh, in a weak market and, and hoping that that's enough to make up the money difference. And, you know, if that were Han's you know, first off season, or if you were a new GM for the White Sox leading a rebuilding effort and it didn't work out, you might say like, oh, that's kind of new creative thinking. And, and, you know, maybe it didn't work out, but maybe there will be more of this. There'll be more, I guess, more of these kind of creative approaches to the off season, but it will actually materialize in players. But given that, you know, it's hard to separate John Jay from, uh, you know, from Kelvin Herrera, just this off season, you know, Kelvin Herrera had nothing to do with Manny Machado, that was just a an acquisition that didn't work. Or, you know, Jeff Kepinger, you know, or yeah, you know, just you know, going back all the way to Hans first offseason with Kepinger and just you know, the players in between, like Deanna Navarro, who just failed to perform when they were plan maybe not plan A, but plan B, or just they intentionally acquired to improve the roster and, and, and do nothing else except improve the roster. You know, it's hard to give Han the benefit of the doubt that this was just a, a bad move because uh, he had a creative notion. So that's where this rebuild thing gets all uh, you know tangled up in the previous, um, you know, with the previous rebuild and just the continued decision-making engine's history. You know, if you lump in Han with Reinsdorf and Kenny Williams, just all three of these guys just making, you know, bad decisions over the last decade and expecting it to be different because he's starting with a clean slate. You know, you can look at these decisions and say that this is just going to end up in the same uh, situation where it's an incomplete roster and they have to hope that some wild stabs at free agency close the deal. Yeah, Rick Hahn's offseason acquisitions for the 2019 season, James McCann, Ivan Nova, Alex Colome, John Jay, Yonder Alonso, Kelvin Herrera, and Irving Santana. If you remember the Irving Santana days at the beginning of this season, the total spent on these seven players was $40 million. And the White Sox currently are getting two wins above replacement production, according to fan graphs, from these seven players. For $40 million, $20 million per war, when the going rate is about $9 million per win above replacement. Yeah, and that's in line with his previous off-seasons. Just poor returns on investment all the way around. Any kind of pleasant surprise, like in this case, James McCann, a pretty pleasant surprise given you know his production and mm-hmm. you know even if he has some flaws it's like ultimately it's been a signing that worked it's just undermined in the same offseason by ones that really didn't work right james buchan is a two-win player but you combine john jay and yonder alonzo and they're negative 2.4 wins above replacement so you're right that completely erases all the gains that you would get from james mccann and I don't think this is this is not trying to be overly negative. It's just that these are the facts, and that's where the White Sox currently are. And this is the lesson that Rickon needs to learn, if we are to be confident that they can make this transition from rebuilder to contender. But as you noted, Jim, he keeps falling into these traps, and these are the traps that the White Sox need to avoid. And I think the key takeaway from the John Jay experience is hopefully this is the last time. Because when they signed James McCann to a one-year, $2.5 million deal, I don't know if they were counting on him to be the starting catcher. It just so happened to be the case, and he was great this year. 
but even like the, I understand trading for Ivan Nova for a year. I never really understood trading for Yonder Alonso because I just felt like that helped out Cleveland so much. But yeah, the the mid thirties outfielders who don't slug anymore. Uh, Raycon needs to stay away from those guys. So that's the lesson to be learned from the John Jay era. Hopefully no more John Jays in the future. Now for the Chicago White Sox, at least on the field, we should touch on the Atlanta Braves series uh, briefly here. I think the main takeaway from the series in Atlanta is that the Braves are a very good baseball team. And hopefully the White Sox can be just as good in the near future. And we mentioned on Sox Machine Live that the White Sox, if they were going to have any success this weekend, they really needed the starting pitching to be really good. And they weren't, especially Yvonne Nova and Ronaldo Lopez. Lopez couldn't even get out of the first inning. And Lucas Giolito, he had a really good stretch, uh, retiring 14 straight batters at one point, striking out four consecutive. Uh, but he just had a hard time with Freddie Freeman, who had two home runs off Lucas Giolito. And ended Giolito's start prematurely uh, as the White Sox had a pinch hit for him in the seventh inning. And Giolito only lasted six innings, even though he wasn't close to 100 pitches. Was there anything else that caught your eye, Jim, from the White Sox Braves series this weekend? Well, I think uh, we both were right about some things. One was that, uh, as, as you mentioned, the Braves bullpen is a mess and could make games way more interesting than they deserve to be. And the White Sox did rally late. They tried to overcome the pitching issues, just um, some late bullpen. I wouldn't even call it late bullpen issues, just uh, when you have to string together so many relief appearances to cover so many innings, one of them is going to go awry and... and and cause a problem. And, and that just happened. So, but the Braves let them back into games and, and they actually, you know, when you watch the first few innings, you think it's just going to be you know worth turning off in the fifth. And as it turns out, it's worth turning off in the eighth. So that's something. And then on my side, you know, I thought that this felt like an eight game losing streak somewhere in the stretch of 30 games. And right now they're at six. So two more to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Well, Let's see if the White Sox can reach eight-game losing streak. I hope they don't, um, but their next series doesn't look particularly good as they're going to be facing a Cleveland Indians team as they continue this road trip in Cleveland where the White Sox had some success earlier in the season against the Indians, but now this Indians team is desperate for wins as they are in a tight race in the American League wildcard. Before we preview that upcoming series, though, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. You can search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place in an industry that tends to stagnate. SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. And they did that by building the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and started joining it. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy White Sox tickets. I'll be there this upcoming weekend as the Angels come into town. It'll be a lot of fun visiting friends. And again, using SeatGeek, the reasons why I love to use SeatGeek is because they help rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10. So I can find I can always find a great deal on SeatGeek. They have the interactive seat map. So if I want to compare views, I could do that within the app. Also, the tickets are all digital, and you need that to get into guaranteed rate field, so it makes it really easy for the ticket people at the gates to scan my phone to get into access. 
And the best part is, is that SeatGeek will give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app on your phone today and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And again, the Chicago White Sox are heading to Cleveland to face the Indians. The Indians are currently 79-58 and on the season. They are five and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins now in the American League Central after they just got swept by the Tampa Bay Rays. So here's your American League wildcard picture as of Monday, September 2nd. Right now, the fourth seed in hosting the one-game playoff would be the Tampa Bay Rays, and they would be playing against the Cleveland Indians, who are currently a half game ahead of Oakland for the fifth seed. So you got three teams pretty much tied And they are competing for two playoff spots. So the Indians are not only trying to hold on and see if they can make up some ground on the Minnesota Twins to win the American League Central, but now they're in a pretty much three-team death cage match for the wild card where only two will survive to make the postseason. So this is a crucial series for Cleveland. They need to win this series to... Uh, find a way to stay ahead of Tampa and Oakland. In their last 10 games, the Cleveland Indians are 5-5. Five and five. And again, on the season series, the Chicago White Sox actually lead the series 7 games to 5. Your probable pitchers for this series starting on Monday. This is a 6-10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Ross Detweiler against Aaron Saval, which Saval has a 0.75 ERA at Progressive Field as a rookie in his two starts there. So he's been pitching well at home. Tuesday, it's Dylan Cease trying to bounce back against Mike Clevenger. Clevenger's last seven starts, 6-0 win and loss record with a 1.85 ERA. He has been pitching terrifically for the Indians stepping up in the absence of Corey Kluber and trading Trevor Bauer away. On Wednesday, it's Yvonne Nova against Shane Bieber, the All-Star. And on Thursday, it is Ronaldo Lopez trying to bounce back against Zach Plesak. Jim, as I mentioned, the Indians need this series bad as they are quite in the race for the wild card. They have the best performing pitchers for them in the second half going the first three games. Can the White Sox steal one of them? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's all I'll say. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's not good. Uh, it does seem like the last game with Zach, Zach Plesak. Plesak, all along when it comes to this like reconfigured Indians rotation. Plesak was the one guy who you looked at his peripherals and you looked at the underlying performance and, and just how he'd been kind of getting around walks and strikeouts or lack of strikeouts and, and base runners being above average and wondering how it's all going to work. And his last about four or five starts have been pedestrian. And uh, the way it worked with this race series was that they only scored runs in the game. Plesak started. And when Plesak started uh, the, the Indian staff allowed nine runs. So there does seem to be a little bit of uh sequencing stuff or or the kind of um uh where they're scoring runs when uh, they're not <laughs> they're scoring runs when they're giving up a lot and they're not scoring runs when they're not giving up many and this seems like the kind of series where the White Sox you know based on the way they pitched recently could be the ones that help them get that straightened out so I don't really have high hopes for this one but uh, I think they can steal one of the four just maybe not one of the three so looking at a nine game losing streak yeah so maybe I will be wrong after all on the other side. <laughs> oh, 
man, the longest losing streak for the White Sox so far this season is seven games in a row where they lost from July 12th to the 28th. So hopefully the White Sox can avoid that. Um, But again, this is going to be a tough series for the White Sox in Cleveland. It will not be a stroll in the park like it was earlier in the year when the White Sox are playing much better baseball. We'll see, though. Funny things do happen in the game of baseball, but the White Sox are facing some pretty staunch starting pitchers, especially the first three games of the series. And again, we'll be recapping this series on Sox Machine Live later this week. But Jim and I will reconvene in P.O. Sox. But coming up next, Jim recaps the last weekend of the minor league season. Welcome to the last full week of the minor league report. Last week, the Charlotte Knights led the International League's wildcard hunt. On Monday, the last day of the regular season, they'll need help to play on. They fell back into a tie with Durham after losing to Norfolk 11-2 on Sunday, but because Durham holds the tiebreaker, the Knights will need to beat the Tides and they'll need Gwinnett to beat Durham in order to make the postseason. Nothing's changed with Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal, Danny Mendick, and Yermeen Mercedes, all of whom would deserve call-ups. Zach Collins has hit a slump at the worst time, though, going 0-12 with three walks and five strikeouts over his last four games. It really doesn't affect his promotion status, and actually there's an irony in that the worse he plays, the sooner he'll be in Chicago. In Birmingham, in another thrilling race that won't be settled until the last day of the season, Blake Rutherford has taken the outfielder OPS lead over Luis Gonzalez 685-678. Luis Pasabe has also made a late charge with four straight multi-hit games, so he has an outside chance of leaping over the competition from his spot at 670. He's also struck out eight times over these last four games, so even his upswing has a downside this season. On the pitching side, Tyler Johnson has tied together four consecutive outings of two scoreless innings. If you weren't heading to the Arizona Fall League, he'd be the most interesting relief call-up candidate. In Winston-Salem, Jonathan Stever put an emphatic stamp on his breakout season with six innings of one-run ball on Thursday. He finished the year with a 2.15 ERA over 12 starts with a dash, and combining his work with Kannapolis, he struck out 154 batters over 145 innings. Connor Pilkington also found some consistency over the last few weeks, showing a little more of why the White Sox selected him with the third-round pick last year. There's not much new to say about Steele Walker and Andrew Vaughn, who have both been okay. Kannapolis had an eventful week in terms of the franchise. They bid farewell to Intimidator Stadium, their home of 25 years, and they also announced that they'll reveal a new team name on October 23rd. On the field, Lennon Sosa will try to end his season with a 10-game hitting streak, as it's up to 9 through Sunday. He hit 316 with a 360 OBP and a 453 slugging in August, so even though his season numbers are underwhelming, he's made the kind of progress in season that you want to see from a 19-year-old. If Charlotte can't get to the postseason, Great Falls will outlast them all, as the Voyagers' regular season runs through Friday. 20-year-old righty Yoel Van Sylvan was tapped by the White Sox to get a few more appearances under his belt before the season comes to a close. He was promoted from the Arizona Rookie League after 44 strong innings, and he's pitched a pair of decent outings with the Voyagers thus far. On the season, he's got a 3.38 ERA, with 54 strikeouts to just 7 walks over 48 innings. That'll do it for the Minor League Report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Socks. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to at Socks Machine, liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and also helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And of course, Jim is here to answer your questions. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from RC on Twitter. And RC is asking, the second and third round picks are both high school pitchers and they have pitched under three innings of organized ball since being drafted. I understand the obvious attempt to limit innings, but what level do you see them starting next year at? I'm thinking when it comes to second round pick, that's Matthew Thompson and the third round pick, Andrew Dahlquist. Seems like the White Sox are, you know, they, they haven't gone down this road of drafting prep pitchers this high in the draft, you know, since uh, Spencer Adams in 2014. And, and they did that in consecutive years. They, they drafted Spencer Adams in the year before, Tyler Danish. And when you looked at how they handled those guys, Adams, his first year, he pitched 41 innings in his first ha- you know, half pro season, ended up throwing 129 innings the next year. Danish pitched 30 and then 123. So, you know, they're already well behind when it comes to Thompson and Dahlquist. Um, even when you're looking at a partial season first uh, exposure to pro ball, they're well behind in innings. So, you know, if I'm looking at that, I'm, I'm thinking that they're probably going to spend, you know, the first month or, or two in extended spring training and then maybe start the season in either Great Falls or Arizona again and, and, and actually pitch in earnest in Arizona and then go from there. Um, I, I wouldn't expect them to go from pitching a, a total of five combined innings uh, in their first half season than going like Kannapolis by May. It's possible given how the White Sox handled things before, but... Yeah, looking at the the totals for Adams and Danish, I do wonder if you know they look at Thompson and Dahlquist, and 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 given how Adams' stuff flattened out and Danish's stuff, they they never got the kind of velocity jumps that were expected of them, given you know their age and their mechanics and and the way you'd expect them to add a little bit as they get in their twenties. Neither pitcher really gained anything going from high school to pro, and so maybe they're looking at this first one, one and a half years in, in pro ball as a way to develop regimens and, you know, five day routines and really get them into the strength building and um, yeah, learning just really how to, I guess, build their arsenal, not just, you know, have it stagnate their first year into the uh, pro ball. So that's my guess would be some kind of, you won't see them maybe until June or July and, you'll see like that kind of full 40, 50 inning buildup uh, next season rather than this one. Yeah, this is an area of the rebuild as well that we can compare to how other teams develop their high school pitchers and see if the White Sox have implemented uh, parts of new infrastructure RC to help support these prep players making the transition from going from the high school showcases and getting acclimated to life in the minor league circuit. Because uh, there are teams that really rely on high schoolers. We just saw a franchise, the Atlanta Braves, are notorious for leaning very heavy on high schoolers. And uh, we can kind of take a peek and look at how other teams handle their prep pitchers and, and their prep players that they draft and see how the White Sox do, especially using their second or third round picks from last year. That's a good That's a good point. I'm looking up right now uh, Ian Anderson, who is a – First round pick a couple of years ago from Braves, a local kid, local to me, uh, Clifton Park, uh, Shenandoah High School kid. And 
see, he was drafted in 2016. No, he did the Spencer Adams plan. He did the uh, 39 innings in his first half season. Next year, 83. The year after that, uh, 119. So it was a partial season, um, his second year. So he didn't quite do the full Adams Danish plan. He wasn't up till uh, a 24 start, 100 plus inning season until his third year in the pros. The benefit of drafting prep pitchers, though, is that when you do have that increase in innings, that if they can click, you can have a starting pitcher start their major league career at age 21, age 22, uh, and be able to take advantage of those prime years of that arm uh, before wear and tear. Whereas you draft a college pitcher, right, like Casey Mize for Detroit, you have to fast track them. Because they've already got a lot of wear mm-hmm. and tear, uh, especially pitching through college. So we'll see. But that that's an excellent question, RC. Thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Shaq on Twitter. And Shaq is asking, hey, Jim, interesting to see Acuna Jr. steal so many bags for the Braves this year. He's had over 30 steals, I believe. Uh, 32 steals on the season after stealing two bags against the White Sox on Sunday. What's going on with Yoan in that category? Is this something he's simply not comfortable with, or is it a risk issue given his injury issues since coming up to Chicago? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think, you know, the, these leg injuries um, have sapped his speed a little bit or made him a little bit more cautious about accelerating and decelerating. Um, and, and when you look at his sprint speed, it has taken a step back, and it's hard to tell how much of that is injuries. It could also be, you know, partially just him filling out, maturing as a player, um, you know, being a little bit. Uh, I guess bulkier than normal, and so maybe that affects his you know acceleration and, and going from you know zero to sixty. I think his top end speed when he's healthy is fine, you know, or I would say more than fine. Like you know he can make easy triples, you know, when he hits the ball in the right spot. Just I think maybe going from you know zero to sixty, or in this case, you know going from first second like zero to ninety, maybe not his strong suit. Um, also, it could be the case you know playing different positions like Acuna being in the outfield versus Moncada being a third base and especially third base, I think more than second is more of a position about, you know, quick reaction, throwing your body around. I think it's more of a physically demanding position. And that's why we've seen, you know, third base, with the White Sox being uh, a minefield of, of back and neck injuries just because of the quick reactions and how much you have to throw your body around. And so maybe it is a bit of a self-preservation thing over the long season. Just, you know, if he does have to make these quick, flop moves and and uh and dives and lunges at third base maybe don't want to do it so much on the base path especially in a year where you're hitting for so much power and getting a second base and beyond on your own anyway yeah but that's you on my kata tim anderson is also not stealing as many bags as i thought he would jim Mm -hmm. are the white Sox now shifting gears and not wanting to run a whole lot when they're on the base paths. I think Anderson, you know, they, they talk about speed, you know, speed doesn't slump. That's the saying, but I think you know, in some cases it does. You know, I think he does get on rolls where he's feeling it and uh, every base is his. And then he has a couple either, you know, he develops uh, a reputation. And so pitchers check him a little bit carefully or the game plan for a bit more. And, you know, it scares him a little bit and he, uh, you know, just becomes less, um, you know, he becomes less aggressive on the base pass, a little more choosy, although that doesn't necessarily apply to Sunday when he got caught stealing, trying to steal third for the final out of an inning when he was the tying run. Uh, that made no sense whatsoever. And so, yeah, I think there's just, there are often times where Anderson just has a uh, 
bad decision-making process going on, you know, underneath his running. But yeah, it just seems like, you know, looking at his, uh, uh, his habits last year, he had a big first half, then kind of slowed down. All of that is more on base percentage related. Um, you know, just when he gets on base, he can run when he doesn't, he can't. And, and I think that's part of the case here, but yeah, it's just, I think more you given his history and, and given some other guys, like even going back to like Juan Pierre and Scott Pizetnik, they had, they had hot streaks, they had cold streaks. And I think speed does slump a little bit. And when he's your main base stealer and he's not stealing, it just seems like nobody's running. So I think it's kind of a cumulative thing, but Anderson, and I think Mankata's case, it's more about, you know, just not, he's not somebody who wants to throw his body around when he does have a history of, you know, missing a week or two at a time. And Anderson, I think, is more of a different case of just uh, him not being somebody who's on base. You know, he has uh, hot and cold streaks when it comes to getting on base, and I think there's hot and cold streaks when it comes to stealing them. Well, Shaq, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from David, which David is a supporter of us on Patreon. So, David, thank you so much for your support. And David is asking, with the rare firing of someone on the White Sox staff, what are your thoughts on the departure of analytics guy, Matt Lyle? Yeah, it, that's a weird one. Matt uh, Lyle, for people who don't know, was, uh, I guess, one of the new school swing analysts, a, a very, um, you know, he gained popularity online as you know, an online hitting instructor and colleges hired him softball and baseball. And actually the university of Missouri hired him for a second before the white Sox hired him away from Mizzou. So, uh, you know, the white Sox aren't picking up somebody who was just, you know, randomly, you know, posted some good YouTube videos. He did have, he was building a body of work that started online and a lot of it was online, but was translating to real instruction. Uh, so, you know, there, it wasn't just a complete, shot in the dark hiring, you know, it was somebody who was in line with a bunch of other, um, hirings from around the league is teachers more than just like coaches, but actual guys who are instructors. Uh, thing is when you look at his body of work, uh, there's really no way to know exactly what he did. Um, you know, nobody really wrote things about him. Uh, James Fegan, who's the person most likely to write about somebody like him, uh, wrote a piece about him when he was hired, but really couldn't find anything or didn't report anything that Lyle was doing when you look at the minor league performances up and down the chain, pretty disappointing year for the White Sox overall. So, you know, there's no evidence that what he was doing was working there. And, you know, when it comes to this kind of, uh, you know, hiring uh, somebody with no pro baseball experience uh, and Fegan in his post writing about Lyle's hiring, you know, alluded to the fact that, you know, he had no pro experience. This could be something that doesn't work. You know, it might not be taken seriously. It might just not click, you know, it might not be anything the White Sox did. It might just be that his approach and uh, his, you know, relation to hitters doesn't really work at this level. And there's really no way to know, uh, you know, it's been called the Wild West uh, when it comes to this uh, new frontier of hiring and, uh, you know, where they're hiring from. And there might be cases where it doesn't work and it might not be the fault of Lyle or the White Sox, it just might be an experiment that just had disastrous results. Um, really no way of knowing without, uh, you know, from our distance and, you know, maybe we'll hear things over the coming months, uh, that will tell us, you know, just why it didn't work out. And it's something too, I think we need to watch with other teams and, you know, this could be feel like a White Sox thing that, oh, they, they dipped their toe into analytics. It didn't work. They ran away from it. Now they're going to just uh, hunker down and just, you know, keep sticking with, uh, Todd Stevenson's top-down approach. And maybe that is the case, but, you know, there could be other cases around teams too, where they hire these guys and 
they they try them out for four or five months, doesn't work, they let them go. Um, this is a whole new area of hiring, and I think there will be a lot of uh, mistakes made along the way, or just you know a trial and error until they find guys who are more permanent employees. And I think really with this particular decision, I I don't think it's necessarily a matter of whether Lyle was the right guy. Uh, I think it's more a matter of if they replace him. You know, if they try Lyle a year, it doesn't work, and then they hire somebody else along those lines, then they're trying. You know, they're trying to find somebody who fits their, uh, you know, fits their system, actually helps guys improve. There's, you know, documented improvements and somebody they can grow with. Uh, if they don't hire anybody and they just kind of retrench in their old ways, then that's, I think, a bigger problem. So I think next January or February, when they release the entire player development roster i think that's probably when we can understand what the white Sox are trying to do from here they haven't replaced nick hostetler yeah you know han said before that he didn't intend to announce hostetler's promotion until later it just happened to leak out early so he had to acknowledge it so that's the case where there might be some kind of bigger change that's going to be fully realized in january we have to wait that long i mean maybe well, I mean, not, not with Hostetler necessarily, but with player development, usually we don't know about those okay, until gotcha. the entire lists are released. And that's basically for every team. But, you know, whether uh, Lyle or that position was part of Hostetler's, you know, uh, or, you know, yeah, I guess it's more under Chris Getz, but whether that has anything to do with more shifts that Hostetler's you know, vacancy created something else, which created something else, you know, we'll see ultimately where all these pieces fall. Uh, I, I don't think Hostetler is related to something like Lyle, but could be the case where, you know, multiple people around the organization are being moved and hirings are being made. And yeah, maybe it's extends there though. I doubt it. Yeah. I don't think it's connected. I just highlighting as an example of they having you replace a director of amateur scouting. Yeah. So if you're looking for them to replace Matt Lyle, that has to be further down the list of positions that could be addressed later on. Like, as you mentioned in January, but as we heard earlier in the show from Jim Callis, this draft class is just as deep as the 2011 draft class. So this is a pretty pivotal draft class for the Chicago White Sox and a lot of teams. And with the showcases and everything that are going on to not have a director of amateur scouting at the moment, they're not behind. But if they don't have one by January, when the college season kicks off in February, then I think that's an area to be concerned about. But as far as finding a replacement for Matt Lyle, uh, we'll see what the White Sox do. I, I am intrigued. Uh, all I do know is that looking at the second half <laughs> offensive numbers for the White Sox, worst walk rate, second worst strikeout rate, they're last in slugging, they're 27th in on-base percentage, and they're 29th in weighted runs created plus in the second half of the season, folks. Yeah, and not much improvement not down the chain either. So whether he was working at the major league level or the minor league level, just not a whole lot of successes to report. Right. So maybe more things will come to light, but I I don't think so. It was just a, maybe a one and done thing, and both parties will will move along. And who knows where Matt Lyle will go, and we'll see how the White Sox do address this. Uh, but it was interesting, and I, I was a bit shocked that the White Sox called it quit so soon because I just didn't. It's just not their style, obviously. They like to hold on to people for a while. Yeah. <laughs> More than just a yeah, year. Yeah, but if they keep, you know, if there's some turnover in this position, but they keep, you know, trying to find a good fit, then ultimately that's probably better than, you know, sticking with somebody that didn't work, even if they have to abandon it a year 
uh, I guess, so early that it looks bad in that regard. Well, they're going to start taking that attitude. I got some other positions they can start <laughs> considering using that type of technique. <laughs> but Yep. But David, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. You could like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And you could also help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where you get additional content with every single episode, an opportunity to ask questions to our guests. Uh, as our guests, our Patreon supporters got an opportunity to do that, to ask a couple questions to Jim Callis, which he answered. Uh, and you also get an ad-free version of the show. So if you enjoy our work and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Again, big thanks to our guest, Jim Callis of MLB.com for joining the show. It's always great to catch up with him and, it's always great to have his expertise on previewing the upcoming Arizona Fall League, which Jim will be updating when that season begins uh, as far as the games and track the performances for the White Sox prospects on SoxMachine.com. So that's something for everyone to look forward to. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. You can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways. One is through Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and Google Podcasts and Audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.